Father God, we praise you for your wonderful provision this morning. Thank you for providing this place for us to gather. Thank you for drawing each of us here this morning and giving us the gift of fellowship and communal worship. And thank you most of all for the gift of your son, Jesus, who is our Savior and Lord. Your gracious gift of salvation that has been poured out into our hearts is beyond our full comprehension in this life. But we pray this morning that you might awaken our hearts and minds and open our eyes to the joy of your salvation that we can grasp so that we might praise you as you deserve. We confess to you this morning that the topics we have been covering in this series on the lordship of your son cause us to defend and fight back. We want to fight any rule over our lives, and we are blind to seeing it. We are so skilled, Lord, at twisting truth so that we might be found right. Father, please, by your Spirit, destroy our pride so that the spiritual scales on our eyes might fall to the ground and we might see your glory in truth. We want to know and feel your conviction so that we can be changed from the rebels that we are to the thankful worshipers we desire to be. Help us to do so this morning by your Holy Spirit and your word. Lord, we also thank you for so many good gifts in our church. We thank you for the gift of the women's Bible study and the leaders who've sacrificed much to lead. We thank you for the many women who are hungry to understand your word more and know you in truth. Please continue to work through that great gift in this church and begin the process of creating that desire and growing it in the men of this church as we prepare their Bible study as well. We thank you for the amazing love that was shown in the midst of our church at the Agape Meal last week, and we know that all of it comes from you. What a blessing it is to have a small glimpse of the marriage supper of the Lamb that is to come. Thank you for our brothers and sister in the Garcia family and their gift of their ministry to us last week. And most of all this week, thank you for the gift of Harvey Clyde Robison to the Robison family and to this church. Thank you for the health of both Harvey and Sarah and the joy it is to welcome another new life into this church. We pray for Tyler and Sarah that they would raise Harvey in the love and admonition of the Lord. We pray for Charlotte and Everett and Holly that they would show your love to their brother in a powerful way. And we pray that by your sovereign grace that Harvey Clyde would come to call Jesus Lord at the earliest possible moment. Father, your grace is more than anything we could ever ask or hope for. We thank you also that you are a God who listens for your people who come to you on behalf of one another. I ask, Lord, that you would solidify unity in the midst of the members of this church. In a season that is busy and about to become busier, we recognize that we can quickly lose touch with one another, and it is in that space that Satan often works, and our hearts become distant, and we even harden towards each other. Please protect us from this tendency and unite our hearts by your Holy Spirit to be unified in the gospel of your Son. We also pray for other churches with whom we worship you in spirit and in truth, we pray this morning for Salem Reformed Baptist Church and their pastor, Gustavo Barros. We pray that the ministry of the word would conform them to your heart and would purify their relationships. We pray, Lord, that they would be united as well in the message of your salvation and that they would have a desire to bring it to all those they know and interact with. And finally, we pray the same for ourselves this morning. We know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, your word, Lord, will stand forever. So please... Let my fallible and earthly words somehow communicate your heavenly and divine truth so that you may increase and I and we may decrease. We pray all of this in the power and authority of your Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat and open your Bibles to John chapter 3. John 3, starting in verse 22. How many of you have ever been to a wedding? Raise your hand. There's people in here that haven't been to weddings? Well, it's probably very probable then that many of you have also been to a wedding where someone, unfortunately, took the spotlight from the bride and groom. Most of us attend weddings expecting for the bride and groom to receive the focus, but many of us have been to those weddings where, again, unfortunately, someone else steals the focus. Perhaps it's the relative whose outfit is meant more for the Kentucky Derby than for the wedding. 
or the woman who decides it's a great idea to wear her old white dress even though she's not the bride, or the father or the best man who have been waiting their whole life to have a captive audience so they can finally give the speech they've always wanted to and perform a roast on the bride and groom. Or maybe someone steals the focus because they lose all self-control and make a fool of themselves on the dance floor. Right now, any of you who have weddings where I've officiated, you're thinking, is he talking about mine? No, I'm not. I'm talking about weddings in general. We could all probably share a story about a time when the focus that was meant for the bride and groom was rudely, somehow, stolen by someone else. Someone who, without even knowing it consciously, ended up making the day or the evening all about them. Now, we may chuckle when we think back on those moments because in most of our memories, that person was someone other than ourselves. But what if someone came and told you that you were, in fact, the one who made it about you? How would you feel? Hopefully, it would humble us because none of us want to be that guy or that girl. But what if I was to tell you that probably completely unbeknownst to you, you are, and I am, that person? What if the reality of our lives at this time in salvific history is that we have stepped into the celebration that is meant to bring glory to Jesus Christ, and yet we decided to hijack it and attempt to make it all about us? What if we have wrongly been told by our egos, by the world around us, in some cases by our parents, and maybe even by many of the supposedly Christian messages around us, that we are the focus? And this life is all about us. We have been told, and our hearts are all too willing to receive the lie, that life is... Eternity is, heaven is, all about me. We believe we are the stars of our own story. Now think with me, for example, about the Christian church at large. When you turn on a Christian radio station and listen to the lyrics of the songs, how many are focused on God's glory and Christ's exaltation? And how many are focused on the listener? Let me give you an example from one of the top worship songs, sung in churches across the nation this last week. It begins with a line from a psalm, but then this is the first verse. Let me read it to you. I'll praise in the valley, praise on the mountain. I'll praise when I am sure, praise when I am doubting. I'll praise when outnumbered, praise when surrounded, because praise is the water my enemies drown in as long as I'm breathing. Now it goes on to talk about the word God for sure. But my point is this, the focus of the song is on the worshiper, not on the one being worshipped. Under the false assumption that they are glorifying God, God actually becomes a tool, an appendage for the exaltation of the listener or the singer. And friends, before we become self-righteous, my point is this, making ourselves the one worthy of glory is an exercise that all of us can fall into all too easily. Our hearts crave to be Lord, to receive glory, and so unless we fight constantly in the Holy Spirit, we will lean away from the truth and towards the lie that we, that I, am the one that is meant to be lifted high. It's as if we think that God has given us our own little story for our 70 years on this earth, and then eternity is really about him. From the start, Satan has taken the focus from the one who is worthy of all praise and tried to get mankind to attempt to steal it for ourselves. So the question for every disciple of Jesus is this. Do you follow a man-centered gospel or a God-centered gospel? Is your life all about you, having your needs met and your joy? Or is it about God and his glory. Who gets the glory of your life? Who is the focus? Just listen for a moment to the difference between these two statements. The first one, 
God created you with a purpose in mind, and you have not yet reached your full potential. Sin has left you sick and unable to be who you were meant to be. So God sent his son to fight against that sin and remove it by dying in your place and bring you forgiveness of your sin so you can be free. And you are free now to live out the purpose and potential that God has invested in you. So just choose to let him into your heart because he loves you. Now contrast that with this. God created a world to declare his glory as a good provider and a good creator. He granted a measure of his authority to his creation known as mankind. Even though it was an impossibility, mankind desired to overtake his throne and rebelled against his authority. In so doing, we aligned with the rebellious spiritual beings who attempted the same revolt. And God would have been just and right to destroy us and all of his creation. And yet, in his foreknowledge, he knew this was going to happen. And so he promised in covenant faithfulness to stay true to a group of people that he chose as his own since the foundations of the world. In his grace, he died in the place of these rebels, taking on their judgment and defeated the rebellious kingdom, rising victorious and taking his rightful place on the throne of God's kingdom. In the midst of this, he pillaged those who are his covenant people from the grip of the kingdom of darkness and placed in us an enlivened heart that resurrected us from our spiritual death and brought us into his kingdom to worship him and bring him glory by our obedience to his rule. Do they both sound like they're gospels that could be preached in a church? Do they? But they each have a very different focus don't they? They each have a very different recipient of glory, don't they? One will draw the hearts of those still in rebellion and desiring lordship for themselves and convince them that they have Christ as Lord when they do not. The other will only draw those whose hearts have been changed by God to desire the glory of God above all else. And that is why it is the true gospel. This conflict between a man-centered focus and a God-centered focus is waging constantly in the church and constantly within our own hearts. Felt needs ministry has overtaken the American church. And felt needs ministry is a lie. For the lordship of Christ to reign in the life of the Christian we must constantly fight to remember that it's not about us, it's about the Lord Jesus. It's not about us, it's about the Lord Jesus. As we continue in this series on the Lordship of Christ and the life of the Christian, we must recognize that to call Jesus Lord is to admit that we must listen to him and him alone, for only he is above all. And for that to occur, we must also realize that we must partner with him to humble ourselves, for our hearts constantly seek to gain power over God and the world around us. And friends, that fight doesn't go away when we accept Christ as Lord. So let's join the story of the gospel according to John the Apostle this morning and hear what God's word has to say to his church on this subject. Let's read John 3, 22 through 36. This is the word of God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon, near Salim, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put into prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He 
must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. We have before us a narrative that contains a speech by John. But the narrative is broken up like many stories. We have a setting, a problem, a solution, and an explanation. And so let's look at each of these and see what they have to say. First, this morning, we have the setting of spiritual authority in verses 22 through 24. At this point in the gospel, according to John, we've just emerged from three different distinct stories. Together, they tell the audience listening that Jesus far surpasses anything that Judaism provided with regard to purification and holiness. In essence, they say Jesus is the authority. Judaism at the time and the Pharisees along with it and the Sadducees, they are not. At the wedding of Cana, he took the purification jars and made purification obsolete in the old ways by using them to bring forth celebration in the new wine, a symbol of the coming feast. A symbol of the feast that he would have with his bride at the consummation of his kingdom. Then at the temple, he cleansed it of the money changers to let them know that the true Lord of the temple and the glory of God had entered in. In his discussion next, then, with one of the main teachers of Judaism, Nicodemus, He let him know that he will be high and lifted up even above Moses, and he will bring forth new birth in God's people. And so now at this point in the story, we join him after establishing this idea that he's authority. And so he is going and he is baptizing in the same area as John the baptizer. But you might also remember that John was preaching a message of repentance from sin. He did not know the continuance of it. And because of this, he was attracting a great following. Even the religious leaders were coming to John to gain insight, while at the same time growing angry with his religious influence because they had the authority, supposedly. And so here we approach the scene. Let's read it again here very quickly, 22 through 24. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put into prison. John is baptizing here at this place called Salim on the Jordan River because water was plentiful there. And the reason this was important was that baptism for the Jews, holiness for the Jews, purification for the Jews, religion for the Jews was supposed to happen where? At the temple. You got one option and one option only. The temple. The temple is the core of Jewish religion and purification. And yet these two men are outside the temple, bringing forth what only the temple can bring, supposedly, which is purification. You see, at the temple were ritual baths called mikvahs that had flowing natural water through them, stairs down into them, and the leaders would preside over it. The priests would preside over it. And this is where someone converting to Judaism or someone coming to the temple to worship would go into the mikvahs to be washed for ritual purification. So when it says that people were coming and being baptized, we just kind of accept it because we think, well, that's what people do. That's what we did at this church for a while. Go to the river. Well, friends, this is a statement of John's spiritual authority over and above, better than the spiritual authority of the religious leaders of the time and even the temple itself. We know this because he is practicing a ritual of purification outside and away from the temple. In essence, he is giving commentary on the fact that there is no purification to be found at the temple. John is doing what the prophets of old were doing, bringing conviction against false spiritual authority. So imagine with me what the scene was like here. The prophet in camel's hair clothing with a rope for a belt starts baptizing Jews to cleanse them from their sin away from the temple. He's fighting the authority, the establishment. 
Now imagine just for a moment in your mind's eye that you are a young man zealous for following Yahweh. You've been to the temple your whole life. Your parents are zealous. You're a zealous family, but you're tired of the excesses of everyday life. And you hear about this prophet named John, so you come out to see him and hear him. You hear his message, see his religious influence, and immediately you attach yourself to him with hopes of impacting Israel for God. But your awe of him doesn't stop there. For one day, as he is baptizing, he declares that the Messiah for whom Israel has been waiting is coming. And this angers the religious leaders to no end, which only serves to build your veneration of him because everyone loves someone willing to take on the current corrupt authority. And then one day he looks up from the water as you are watching, and behold, he points to a man and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. This is the Son of God. And this man to whom John was pointing then stops and asks the one you're following, your master, John, to baptize him. And John replies quickly, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But this man persisted and said, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. As the follower of John, as much as you don't want to admit it, your pride starts to grow. For even the one who is the Messiah of Israel, the Son of God, wants to be baptized by the one you follow. He's submitting under the authority of purification of John the Baptist. Imagine with me, friends, how quickly you could be a follower amidst this glorious event, rejoice in it, but all the while the pride inside is building because your sense of importance is growing larger and larger from all that transpires. And this setting brings forth the moment of conflict in the story, which is the problem of misplaced authority. The problem of misplaced authority. We see this in verses 25 and 26. Now it should be easy for us to put ourselves in the place of these disciples. How easily like them our pride can grow. After all, we are following the one preaching truth and acting in purity. After all, our church is growing, our pastor's great, I really like what our church is doing. And pastors sit around and bemoan the fact that we are friends and yet those that go to our churches want to be territorial and say we're the only church that's good. Realize there's a difference between calling out churches that are heretics and dismissing all other churches. Churches are all doing the same work if they're following the same gospel. Pastors are all doing the same work if they're all following the same gospel. Without even meaning to, how easily our pride can swell in our ministry, our church, our self-righteousness, our fight against sin, our Bible memorization, our Bible reading plan. And suddenly pride is what takes over our heart rather than humility. Without even recognizing it, the ultimate authority that these disciples are serving with John has now taken a back seat. And in a sense, their own self-importance has reared its ugly head. And look how it manifests here in verses 25 and 26. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now, did you catch that? A discussion. A discussion here is not simply a conversation. It's more akin to when I say that my wife and I have engaged in heated fellowship. <laughs> right? It means there is conflict, debate, arguing. And what are they arguing about? They're arguing about authority and the topic of purification. And this is shorthand for an argument over who has the right on behalf of God to baptize and bring purification, who can preside over the ritual baptism that is going on. So what we have here is the disciples of John arguing with a prominent Jew, and many uh, translators believe it's actually plural there instead of singular, prominent Jews. And what is it that has spurred this discussion? Well, they go to John, and the tone and emotion of the next few lines are clear. John, they say, 
the one you bore witness to, you had authority over. He's asserting his authority in baptizing people outside of your ministry. How dare he? Now think of the irony and complete ignorance that is being displayed here. The religious leaders were mad at John because they claimed to have ultimate authority on religious purification. But it was actually misplaced authority. But then these Jews come to the disciples to probably point this out, and in the midst, the disciples of John then do the very same thing about the new guy, this Jesus of Nazareth. Because they have misplaced authority in John, and maybe even in themselves. They're coming to John because they think that John is going to be upset. John established this awesome ministry pointing to Yahweh, but here comes this Jesus, and in the mind of the disciples, he's now stepping on John's toes because he's claiming that he has the right to religiously purify. Friends, who is the focus in their minds? Whose glory are they fighting to protect? and defend. Is it Yahweh? No, because if it was, they would rejoice that someone else had come to proclaim the message of God's word and the message of God's kingdom. Is this the focus in their minds? Well, we could say on the surface, maybe the focus was John. It seems they are coming to him to alert him to the fact that some are going to Jesus and not to him. So it seems his ministry might be on the downturn. And we even get this idea that, hey, he's about to go to prison, right? But is that really their concern? I wonder, could it be that they are actually worried about themselves and their own prideful part in the ministry of John? You can hear a bit of the desperation in their voice. If you lose your ministry... If it goes under, who am I? What part do I have? How often, brothers and sisters, do we do this very same thing? Our emotions get brought up to a fever pitch because we think some great wrong has been performed. And when we pause and look a little further, we realize that what is wounded is not God's honor or authority or glory. For friends, his authority can never be wounded. He will reign regardless of what we do as humans. Our emotions rise because I am offended and my lordship and authority, my opinion has been threatened. My part in the spotlight, my glory has been minimized. You see, these disciples, without even meaning to, have placed authority in their master and themselves just as the Pharisees did toward John. But how backward is that? According to chapter 1, they had just recently heard that Jesus was the son of God. And yet their pride and lordship and their belief in their own authority was so strong that they believed they had the right to complain about God, what God was doing in Christ. Lord, how dare you minimize the ministry of John in order to promote your son? That was the message they were bringing forth. And it turns out that this was indeed a case of misplaced authority. But it was not misplaced in Jesus. It was wrongly claimed and asserted by these disciples. And luckily, John sets them straight with the truth as he explains the solution of surrendered authority. The solution of surrendered authority. Let's read John's response in verses 27, and we'll pause in verse, after verse 31. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. John immediately clears up the question of spiritual authority and really authority in general. He says a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Friends, meditate on that this week. Every second that you're alive, every breath that you take, every moment of joy you have, 
every moment of pain that you have. In other words, there is nothing that is earned. Contrary to our Bill of Rights, there is nothing that is a deserved right. There is nothing that is achieved by our merit. It is all God's gift of grace. Our life, our breath, our intellect, our existence in this part of the world, our liberty, and anything else we have is simply grace. Anything that we have, anything that we are, is given by the sovereign provider. And what is John specifically referring to here? Even our place and role in the cosmic order, the time we are born, the time we die, and our part in the story of redemption is given by God. Friends, have you ever wondered why you were not born as one of the Jews in Jesus' day that most likely would have cast him aside and wanted him to be crucified? Why were you born when you were born in order to hear the gospel thousands of years later so it made sense? All good gifts come from above. On hard days, how often and quickly it will come from our lips, why me, Lord? Why now? Why here? Why this situation? We assert our authority as if we have the right to hold the all-powerful creator, provider, savior, and judge to account. The words from God's response to Job in Job 40 verse 8 ring in my ears. God says to Job, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Friends, we focus so heavily on the actions of sin around us, the biggies, if you will, but where does all sin begin? It's in the nanosecond in which our hearts turn from our creator and say, how dare you? What right do you have to rule my life? It is that moment that should remind us that we are still of the flesh in desperate need of his gracious mercy and help. John goes on, my paraphrase here, the Hans version. Guys, you just told me that you heard me say, I'm not the one, it's not about me. And yet here you are complaining to me as if you think I care that he is being magnified over me. John is telling them clearly that he has been given a role by God that he accepts, that he glories in, and he refuses to fight. Friends, whether it be your marriage, your kids, your boss, your life circumstances, your health, what are you fighting him on? How dare you, Lord? How dare you, Lord? In fact, John does quite the opposite. He rejoices in his life. For the role he has been given in the cosmic order is not that of the bridegroom or the bride at the wedding to deserve the focus, but of the best man. In that culture, and even somewhat today, this job was to make sure everything goes off without a hitch. In Jewish culture, the best man would announce that the wedding was taking place so the guests would come. He would be the one who would go with the groom as protection to get the bride and walk to the ceremony. He would do all the work and get none of the glory. And then he would step back from view so that they might get the focus. He was the servant whose only reward was to see the joy of his great friend as he was joined with his bride. Guys, John is saying, don't you see it's not my place to get the glory. The bridegroom is here. I can hear his voice. I see what is happening and I rejoice. In fact, my joy is complete as it could ever be. And now my only job is to fade away so that he can be glorified. In other words, it's not about John. It's about the Lord Jesus. Friends, there was nothing special about John the baptizer, and yet Jesus called him the greatest man born among women. In fact, he lived a life that most of us would quickly push aside. He was a wilderness wanderer, destitute by most standards, hated by many, famous in the eyes of the Jews for 20 seconds of fame. He ate locusts, for goodness sakes. And yet he gladly accepted his place in God's will and redemptive plan because he knew that his life 
was not about him. It was about the one who has true authority that all creation is meant to glorify. Notice the series of contrasting statements from that point on in the next few lines. He must increase, but I must, what's that word? Decrease. Decrease. He who comes from above is above all. Who's he talking about there? Jesus. Boy, it must be convicting in here this morning. You can barely talk. Who's he talking about there? Jesus. Jesus. He who comes from above is above all. He was of the earth. Who's John talking about himself? Uh, talking about there? <laughs> himself. I gave you the answer. What a good pastor I am. I'm trying to help you. Just kidding. He belongs only to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Who's that? That's the beginning of the statement, the end of the statement. Friends, is this the attitude of our hearts? Lord, is this the attitude of my heart? Lord, please make it so. The Greek word for earth here carries with it the connotation of soil or ground. It's possibly a reference to the fact that he was simply made out of the dirt like his predecessor, Adam. I am but dirt. My name is mud, we say in our old culture. But Jesus is not like Adam. He's not stuck in the brokenness of only earthly flesh and original sin. Jesus came from the Father, from the throne room of God, and he alone has authority that has been given by Yahweh. So John's only job, his entire purpose in life, his role in life was to bring glory to God and then get out of the way. He must increase, but I must decrease. John is telling his disciples, you are upset, but you are ignorant for the very thing that I came to do is being accomplished. Rather than being upset, you should rejoice with me, but you're too stuck on yourselves. You're too focused on what it all means for you. Friends, this is how Paul could say in his epistles that no matter what happened to him, he would rejoice. Paul, like John, was given a special job by God, but in that job, he knew that it was not about him. He understood that come good or come evil in his life, come riches or rags, come isolation or friendship, God is sovereign and God will get the glory. And this is why he could say what we read in our second reading. If anyone, thinks, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Notice all these things he says because he says, I could get the glory. It could be about me. I was the best. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He must increase, but I must decrease. You see, Adam and Eve were given great authority over God's creation in Genesis 1 through 2, he told them that they were to subdue creation, work and keep the garden, have authority over all the other living creatures. But this was only so that they could give that authority back to God in obedience, and in so doing, declare to all creation in the spiritual realm that God is the Lord. But rather than do that, they took it for themselves and wrongly believed that they could have a self-created, self-sustained authority outside of and even above the Creator. And this tendency to focus on ourselves, believe life is all about us and work to control all that surrounds us so that we achieve our purposes and are glorified in our reign and leave our legacy, this is the heart of rebellious sin. I've watched so many then try in their zeal to cast this aside by getting serious about Jesus or getting into ministry work or missionary work or full-time ministry or starting an outreach I gotta, I gotta just go out there into the wilderness and be John the Baptist. But all the while, the circumstances may have changed, but the heart has not. The heart is still focused on the glorification of the self. 
One of the many beautiful side effects of planting this church is that the Lord has absolutely crushed in me any desire for this to be about me. Any desire at all. And I have had to own and confess to him many times, Lord, I think I may have started this church so I could be glorified. He needs to destroy it in our lives. Pride can so easily come up and make it all about us. But friends, the good news is that this this bad news is overcome by the good news that Jesus came to redeem, restore, and bring salvation. In our place, he perfectly fulfilled the will of the Father. Jesus had the right to claim authority and glory. And yet in his life, his ministry, and especially in his death and resurrection, he perfectly performed what Adam and Eve, what you and I, did not. He said, not my will, Father, but yours be done. Not my glory, but all glory be to you. He realized that glory only comes from the Father. It cannot be claimed on our own. And so he decreased to the point of death on a cross as a falsely accused criminal so that Yahweh, his Father, might be glorified. And because of this, he's been given a name above all names. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied, decreased himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. The only solution, friends, to this exaltation of self that we are all guilty of is to reckon with the gospel of Christ. Then, like the disciples of John, we realize that we must quickly bow the knee to his lordship. And to do so, it will take a purposeful and consistent destruction of our own lordship. And the final section of our text this morning shows us this. Here we see the all-encompassing authority of Christ. Let's read verses 32 through 36. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This teaching series on Christ's Lordship really finds its core issue in this sermon And it can be encapsulated in this question. Friend, is the good news you received from Jesus good news because in it you received the focus, the affirmation, the love, the attention, and the glory? Or is it good news because what was made wrong in our rebellion has been set right in that Jesus has been glorified to the glory of the Father? Is it good news because Jesus receives the focus, Jesus gets the acclaim, and Jesus is known as the ultimate sovereign Lord over all the world? Over the last two decades in ministry, I've watched so many people proclaim to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, but then burn out and disappear from the walk they once had. And I would submit to you that this is because in many of those situations, the good news was heard as a glorification of self rather than Christ. What they heard was, believe in Jesus and you will have a good life. Believe in Jesus and you will find and fulfill your purpose. Believe in Jesus and you'll find a spouse that meets all your needs. Believe in Jesus and you will have friends or family you never had. Believe in Jesus and you will get wealthy. Believe in Jesus and you will be the wisest, smartest, and holiest. Believe in Jesus and you'll have great mental health. 
Believe in Jesus and you will finally understand all the chaos in the world. Believe in Jesus and you will be the focus and get the glory. But then conflict arises, as Jesus promised. Struggle and difficulty in life arise, as Jesus promised. Spiritual warfare and temptation arise, as Jesus promised. And there is no root, because they are not actually rooted in the true gospel, and so they perish. They are those who attempted to take by their own power the glorification that grace from God alone can bring. But friends, the true gospel is different. For remember, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And this includes salvation, repentance, and obedience. So what is it that is given from heaven? It's the realization that Jesus is Lord. That's it. And then you realize that you are his creation and you have rebelled against his reign in your life and now by his death in your place, he has forgiven you of this rebellion and by his resurrection and ascension, he has poured out his spirit into you and given you the gift of repentance so that you might grow every day in obedience to his rule in your life. What is given you by God's grace is the understanding of and the rejoicing in the fact that Jesus is Lord. Look at how John puts this in verses 32 through 33. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. John says this in paradoxical fashion. Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard, in other words, from, the God, from God the Father and heaven, yet no one receives his testimony. And then he immediately says, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. But how is it that both no one receives his testimony, but then some do? Because no one is righteous, and yet by God's gracious sovereign act of salvation, he breaks through the hardness of our prideful hearts, and he declares, God is true, Jesus is Lord, and you are his forgiven and blood-bought subject. And the converted heart, the truly converted heart, responds with, Amen, Lord, thank you for I did not deserve it, and I will never deserve it. And then the good news is declared. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Friends, if I wanted to grow this church in a heartbeat, it would be so easy for me to say, God loves you. It's all about you. Let's perform everything about you. Make programs about you. Do you know how hard it is to preach? God loves the Son, and you are rebels against him. That's not a church growth strategy. Unless you want a church that grows with truly converted hearts. Jesus has been enthroned as Lord over his people. He has been sent as the one who speaks God's truth. And he does so by God's spirit. Unlike the prophets of old who were given just enough of the spirit to empower their short-lived ministry, Jesus has been given the spirit without measure so that his ministry and reign will never end. And all the authority of the Father has been handed to the Son so that he might rule over all. Friends, it's not about us. It's about the Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen. Whoever believes the Son, believes what? Believes that the Son has been enthroned and given all things by the ultimate authority. Whoever believes that has eternal life. How do I know that this is not just about believing he exists, believing in something you can't see, but it's about believing in authority because the parallel statement is made next. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Belief and obedience are parallel. They're synonyms. And this is almost the exact same wording that Jesus spoke earlier to Nicodemus. Just turn the page back to 3.18 through 21. Maybe you don't need to turn the page in your Bible, but 3.18 through 21 Jesus said to Nicodemus, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Friends, what we as your leadership and your elders call you to is being part of a work in this church, not because it will glorify the name of this church, nor will it glorify you or the ministry you want to start. We call you to glorify the name of Jesus, that he must increase, but we must decrease. Mankind is condemned already because we desire the glory to be ours and refuse the authority and lordship of God. And even worse, we refuse the one who he sent to give us his word. And so unless he proactively grants us life and illumination to the truth by his grace, we are rightfully, voluntarily condemned to eternal wrath. Friend, is Christ trying to draw you to himself today? Is he bringing you to conviction that you have made your life all about your glory, your authority, your genuine self being known? If so, he is calling you to surrender it to him so that he might be glorified and you might be rescued from enslavement to your rebellious heart. If that is you, I beg you, come talk with me or one of the other pastors after the service about what it is to call him Lord. You can tell where you're at because you can feel your heart either softening towards his grace or hardening in defensiveness. Let him soften it. Come to him. He's the great shepherd of your souls and he wants to guide you in truth. Brothers and sisters, we have so many areas of our lives where we do this very thing. Even as Christians who every day say, Jesus, you are my Lord. How do we know we're doing this? When we make it about us. The weight of our authority shifts from Christ to us and we find that we can very easily, almost without even acknowledging we are doing so, completely disregard scripture when scripture is clear. Let me give you a couple of examples in the area of relationships that are very current. I've had discussions on these issues in this church the last few weeks. So if you're a person who talked to me about one of these topics, I'm not pinpointing you, just FYI. But here's a few subjects that come to mind. The first one on parenting. How many times is scripture clear that our job as parents is to raise our children in the admonition or the instructive counsel of the Lord? Raise them in the fear of the Lord. How many times is scripture clear that the same rebellion that is present in us is present in them and it takes firm, loving discipline to point them to Christ? And yet in today's climate of gentle parenting, Christians are manipulated by the world into thinking it's about your child seeing you as a friend or about your child having the great life. But friends, it's not about you and it's not about your child. It's about Jesus being glorified. And that will require hard days as a parent where you know because scripture calls you to that you must discipline your child. You must say no to your precious little sinless child. <laughs> That's what gentle parenting is about. Your child is special. Help them know they're special. They're not special. They're rebels against God. Foolishness is bound up in their hearts just as much as it is bound up in ours. This does not give you the excuse to abuse your children. That is likewise sinful. Raise them in the admonition and discipline of the Lord. Stop treating them as if they're superstars. Otherwise, guess what? They'll grow up to think they are one, and then the real problems will start. How about the topic of conflict in the church? Scripture is clear. Friends, I beg of you, hear me. Scripture is clear. There's no caveats. That when you have a negative opinion of someone because of their sin, that when conflict arises, we are to immediately go to our brother or sister that we think is in sin or has harmed us to bring about reconciliation that glorifies Christ. But how often do we dismiss this very clear command of our Lord? Because deep down, we are worried about how they will see us. Or we are worried about the pain of a hard conversation. 
or our ego tells us self-righteously that they will not listen to us, so why even talk to them? Brothers and sisters, it is not about us. It is about Jesus. And we can only say that it is true in our lives that he is Lord when our opinions, our needs, and our wants fade away so that Christ can reign over us in all that we do, all that we think, and all that we say. Friends, I could give example after example after example. I'm being nice to those in the room that are married today by not giving you as an example. Yes, that should deserve a chuckle because the same thing is true in your marriage as it is in mine. All of these examples originate from one of the two gospels I shared at the beginning of this sermon. One is false because its emphasis, its goal, is your glorification, your comfort, and your good. A worldly good. The other is true because while you reap beyond anything you deserve, its emphasis, its goal, is the glory of the one and only Lord, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this week. Rather than go out of here feeling condemned, or shamed. Recognize the goodness of God that has come to you in the source of conviction. And sit down and ask this simple question. What would it look like for Christ to increase in my life as authority and for me to decrease? Let me give you some possibilities, and I'll finish up with this. Let's see what rings true. Perhaps it begins with reorienting the gospel upon which our life is based so that it is the true gospel of Christ's ascension, enthronement, and exaltation, and not the false gospel of your own exaltation. Perhaps it starts with actually accepting Christ as Lord, even though you've been in church for many, many years. Accept the true gospel, and this will press you further and further into dependence upon God's Spirit and God's Word to guide us in obedience to His commands so that we might decrease and He might increase. Perhaps it is realizing that God is sovereign so that when things come at you, no matter how good or how bad, you give thanks to God and depend upon him to glorify him no matter how difficult the situation is. And if your heart isn't there naturally, pray that God will change your heart to give thanks regardless of what comes. Perhaps it is looking at your life goals and reorienting them away from your comfort, security, and material wealth and instead asking what your life goals would look like with thanksgiving to God for his good gifts, relationships based on discipleship in his name, and proclamation of his good news as the focus. I'm sure you can come up with more, but these are just some ideas of how we might go about the practical application of the Lord increasing in our lives and us decreasing. Brothers and sisters, Stop looking so glum. It is good news that it is not about us. Don't look like you've heard bad news today. It is good news that it is not about us. It's about the eternal glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that begins today as we move into worship and as we lay down our sins before his altar and as we remember him and give praise to him and shout glory to his name and love one another to his glory, it begins today. It's not about us. It's about the Lord Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are so thankful for your good news that it's not about us. But Lord, we have to admit that this hits at the very center of our hearts, because we, as much as we have tried in our lives, as much as I have tried in my 44 years on this planet, as much as this church has tried to completely rid ourselves of this desire to be Lord, it sticks with us, it clings on so tightly. And Lord, there is only one solution, and that is for the good news of your glorification of your death, of your resurrection, of your ascension and enthronement, and the fact that you will come again to make all of it fulfilled, Lord, that is what is the salve to our pain. That is what will remove and get rid of this thing that clings to us. Paul said it so well, who will save me from this body of death? All glory.
be to you, the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the fact that you are the one that can free us from our own lordship. But Lord, it is a hard sell to our human flesh and our human hearts. And so even now, Jesus, as we step into worship through song about you, even now as we go to the table of communion that you prepared as the good God who gives grain and grape to his people, Lord, help us. Peel away the layers of our heart that are so self-focused and self-righteous and help us to come to you as the needy beggars that we are. And then help us to rejoice and give thanks that you have seen fit to save us who are so unworthy. You have seen fit to call us to account and discipline us who are rebellious children. And Lord, help us to truly glory in your glory, not our own. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.